Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio is... An unsubpoenaed Jason Rosenbaum. (laughs) Uh, Timely. And... And Joe Manis. And our special guest this week... State Representative Tracy McCreary. Yes. Actually in studio this time. Yes. Which is which is great because we don't have to trip over their words when we can't really see them. That's one of the, the secret downfalls of doing it remotely. Secret yeah. Downfalls. However, yeah, we'll be doing a number of those remote ones this, this um, session, yeah. and hopefully our listeners will enjoy them. Uh, they're mainly... We'll notice it more than you do because of the powers of... <laughs> technological advances yeah the audio should sound but but, pretty but good. nothing beats an in-person politically speaking yes yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes that's what everyone says that's what everyone says uh but let's talk about you uh so you you are representative tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you got there oh and your district too. oh sure yeah. sure so i represent portions of mid st louis county i reside in olivet and my district includes a lot of creve Corps some town and country, Mm -hmm. some Frontenac, and I go all the way out to Chesterfield, a little bit past 141. I have kind of East Chesterfield, Officially, what's the number of your district? It's District 88. Okay. Yep. Yep. And I'm actually considered a redshirt freshman in the legislature this year. I was Mm -hmm. fortunate to have served one year back in 2012. I ran in a special election in the fall of 2011 and served um, a year that was left on somebody's uh, open seat. And not to get too in the weeds, but because I guess you were inaugurated, what, after January 1st or something, you you get to run for three more terms. You're not limited. Right. So if I would decide to run, um, I could serve a total of nine years. Yes. So mm-hmm. that's kind of rare in the term limited era, but it's one of the quirks of term limits. Wasn't there some other quirks about your one year? Well, we'll, well. get to that in a minute. We'll <laughs> get to right. that in a minute. Okay. okay. Well, go ahead. But, yeah. But first, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into politics. Sure. Sure. So I, I actually grew up in rural northern Ohio, and I went to the Ohio State University, and it's I moved here. It's important to say the. Apparently, people who, who went there get kind of upset if you don't mm-hmm. Include the the, so. it's a the with In, a including T. our our general manager Tim Eby. Yeah. I knew I liked him. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I moved to St. Louis right after I graduated from college to take a job in the pharmaceutical industry. So I've been in in uh, the St. Louis area for about twenty five years. Yeah. And and you are a Joan Bray. Alum. Uh, I am. Yeah, I w- had the honor of working for State Senator Joan Bray for the entire eight years she was in the Missouri Senate. And uh, it was a, a life life opportunity, and I learned a lot. And that's really where I decided that I wanted to move from being a behind-the-scenes person to being an upfront person like I am. Now, what did you do for Bray? What, what was your official title? I was officially her district aide, so I ran her district office here in the St. Louis County region, and that was just to give her more of a local presence. Because as you know, um, the senators are often in Jefferson City Monday through Friday, but there were a lot of things going on back here in her home district where, that needed her attention. So I was her, her eyes and ears on the ground here. One of the things that's always uh, fascinated me about former Senator Bray is she was probably one of the strongest progressive legislators in the Senate. She was very upfront about her views on abortion rights, gun control, campaign finance. But I also got a sense that because she was on the Appropriations Committee and because I think she fostered a pretty good relationship, especially with former Senator Gary Nodler, she was able to be fairly influential 
as a budget appropriator, even though she was in the minority. Mm-hmm. Was, was that kind of a fair assumption? Or? It, it is a fair assumption. She took her, she was the ranking Democratic member in Senate appropriations, and she took that very, very seriously. And um, because I think that people really respected her knowledge and her mastery of the budget process. And again, she was she was authentic. You know, it's like you you always knew where she stood. And I I remember watching Senator Bray on panels and things through the years. And I will will tell you, she never had a poker face. You you always knew exactly what she thought about an an issue or a topic. Which is kind of the magic of the Senate. You can you may not win every battle, but you can still be influential even when you're in the minority because, you know, senators are more powerful. And I think Senator Bray used that to her advantage many times. Yeah, and and for full disclosure, Senator Bray and I worked together for a number of years at the Post-Dispatch in her earlier career, and I can say that she was a tightwad, which is probably why she was good with the budget process. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I will never, ever take another job with someone who's a former editor either. I hated getting pieces of writing started for her because she would go at it with a red pen and I'd get all sweaty and she, you know, she would just tear my writing apart. But she was good. She's a good writer. Oh, she's a great writer, yeah. So in 2011, so to kind of uh, take the veil off what we were alluding to earlier, uh, then State Representative Jake Zimmerman successfully ran for St. Louis County Assessor, which caused a vacancy in his district, which was, I guess, a different, slightly different district because of redistricting, mm-hmm. but I think it was pretty much mid-St. Louis County. And it was an interesting situation because when there's a vacancy for a state legislative spot, the party committees end up choosing the nominee. And they ended up choosing somebody else. By they, I mean the Democrats. And you decided to run as an independent, and you actually won as an independent. Yeah, much to my surprise. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Well, I will do that. Um, a lot of this is sort of that insider politics things that I think a lot of your listeners like. Well, um, yeah, they laugh at <laughs> So I, I like to say that I, I got a majority of the support from the committee men and women that were in that process. I had support of seven of the ten people in the evening when when they met to select their Democratic candidate. But because the votes were weighted, yes, the person the um, and the person who ultimately got the Democratic nod was able to vote for himself that evening, too. So so I did not get the nod that uh, night when the committee men and women met. And um, some things came out at that meeting dealing with uh, Missouri ethics violations and such. And the more I thought about it, I just wasn't really sure that the voters in the district would be comfortable voting for a Democrat that had um, outstanding fines for the Missouri Ethics and Commission. And who are we talking about here? Jeff O'Connell is his name. Yep. So you ended up prevailing. And there was, I remember that race a little bit. Yes. There was a little bit of trepidation that when there were two Democratic candidates, it might split the vote. And the Republican may win. I know that district pretty well. It's a fairly heavily Democratic district. So I was always a little leery of that scenario. But it has happened before. I remember in 2005, that's what happened with that Jeffco Senate seat. Mm -hmm. And we had Senator Bill Alter. But you ended up being there for about a year. Yep, I was there for a year. Uh, Interesting, too, in that that special election, the fall of 2011, the Republicans did two mailers on my behalf. One was a piece that was supposed to look negative, but it actually was a veiled positive piece about me. And then one was a, a true negative where it showed me kind of dancing with President Obama. So it yeah, was, it was it, So they basically pulled a Claire McCaskill. Mm-hmm. So Before. But, actually, it should be Claire McCaskill pulled a, 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 <laughs> a Tracy, right? Exactly. Yeah. But um, so 
<laughs> After redistricting, you decided to run as a Democrat in what is a now, well, what district was it? It was District 71. District 71. It was an open seat because there it didn't have a representative. Right. So it, during redistricting, when the new maps came out in 2012, I was placed in the same district as State Representative Jill Shoup. I'm a good friend of hers. She actually was a mentor to me that year I was in the Missouri House, and I decided I was not going to run against her. She just is a marvelous Democrat, and we have pretty much identical voting And, and also, as we found out last year, she's pretty good at running campaigns. Uh, yes, she's marvelous <laughs> at running campaigns. So so the uh, party and those um, and others in power encouraged me to run for an open seat about a half a mile north of where I live, north of Olive Boulevard, is, was the dividing line of the two districts. So I ran in a district that I did not reside in. And I was able to do that because the maps came out so Correct. late that, you know, it wasn't like I was doing anything suspicious. You're no, allowed other, to. other people did that too. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't super unusual. Right. Continue. People from both parties did that pretty much. So I ran in a seat that I didn't reside in and lost mainly because I was an outsider. Yeah. So. you lost, It was to current representative Sue Meredith. So you're part of this group of people who in the legislature uh, were you ran against each other at one time and now serve at the same mm-hmm. time. But what did you kind of learn from that experience? Yes. We had talked about this before for an article that I was writing, but it does seem like when people lose an election, it gives them a lot of perspective of how to run another one. Yeah. Well, the the good thing about the race that I ran and lost is I knew the day after the election that there wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have done anything differently. I couldn't have worked any harder. And that's the one way you can really live with a loss is if you don't second guess yourself the whole time. But, um, you know, I, not to get too spiritual about all of this, but, you know, I would have been probably 40, six at the time that this happened. And um, I sort of wish I'd learned this life lesson much earlier in life, that you can actually try something, give it all you've got, and lose, and publicly lose. You know, when you run for office, it's not it's not the same as, like, losing your job and only a couple people know about it. Like, I lost my job publicly. It was on the news. It was in the paper. It was on, on this radio uh, station. Um, you know, and, and what I realized is I could lose but not feel like a loser. And it was a really valuable life lesson, and I wish I would have learned it 25 years ago. In the interim, you actually worked for Promo, which yes. is the state's top uh, LGBT advocacy group. Mm-hmm. It, it was during a pretty busy time <laughs> during that for, for that community. Yes. Uh, yeah, because this is when they were getting a lot of a um, pro-LGBT uh, provisions in various communities in St. Louis County mm-hmm. and elsewhere in the state. And then DOMA was struck down as right. well. Yeah, so we had all kinds of positive positive things happening for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people, both in the state of Missouri locally, but also at the national level as well. Um, I That, I think, will be probably the best job that I've ever had when I look back on all, the, all of my jobs at the end of my life. It was an amazing time to be involved in a pro-equality movement, and um, I learned a lot. My job was actually focused on health equity, this idea that those that are in my, members of a minority group have poorer health outcomes. So um, the Missouri Foundation for Health is very interested in reducing health disparities amongst minorities here in the state of Missouri. So they, um, they, they funded this project that I worked on through Promo. So fast forward, I guess, to last year. 2014. Uh, uh, Representative Shoup has decided to run for Senate, which leaves her district open. You didn't have a primary. No. And you ran against a gentleman, uh, Raymond Chancellor. Mm-hmm. It was Chandler. It, Chandler. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sorry, Raymond Chandler. I mispronounced your name. And he, has, he had the same name as the novelist? Yes. Uh, 
Wow. And hey, that's how you always knew you were talking to a sophisticated voter when they would put that together. So. And he, this was kind of an interesting situation because I know I, I know that district relatively well because I have family in that in kind of western central St. Louis County. And it's not like a safe Democratic district. So you actually have to work on it when it's mm-hmm. when it's um, open. But it wasn't really like a targeted Republican race because they were kind of focusing their attention on, you know, taking out Vicki England or Bill Otto are, you know, trying to keep that Kirkwood seat. So when we were talking a couple of months ago, it seemed like it was a much different atmosphere than what, like, Vicki England or Bill Otto was mm-hmm. going through. Is that basically a fair assumption? Yeah, it's a fair assumption. I the, This race, it, it's the seat I'm in is by no means a totally safe Democratic seat, but the Democratic Party wasn't going to help me. and But yet the Republicans also weren't willing to take their resources and, and put them in. But didn't it help? From the standpoint that your district was within a Senate district, which was arguably the most competitive Senate district as far as both sides pouring in a bunch of money after Jay Ashcroft came in as the Republican in the state or at least in the St. Louis area. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I'm convinced that the reason the turnout was so high in my state rep race is because in for for a lot of people, Jill Shoup was the biggest race in the state, not just in our region here. I mean, it was really the only Senate seat where we had a chance to turn a Republican seat back to a Democratic seat. So so Jill's early support of me, she the, the moment she decided to run for Senate, she was publicly supporting me to fill her shoes in the House. Um, her early support and the team spirit that her campaign team exhibited towards me, I'm sure, helped me. Um, I won't say ease into victory because I did knock on 10,000 doors. Right. I, I made uh, two loops through the district. I also think it helped Steve Stanger win. I mm-hmm. mean, I think he owes a huge debt to how well of a campaign she'll shoot Brad. Because if she would have not run as good of a campaign as she did and raise all that money and win by four or five percentage points, I think he would have lost. Well, well and it, and it, it wasn't, it wasn't, ju- it wasn't yeah. an accident. We actually had a, a coordinated campaign for the Democratic races in the county that were going to be tight. So it wasn't opened up to, you know, like a Clem Smith who's in an 80 percent district. But those districts that the Democratic Party was worried about, we met every Friday and figured out a way we could help each other. So, for example, the night before the election, I took all of Steve Stanger's signs to polling places in in my district as well, just to help. So there you go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because this is one of those cases where it's not just the percentage of victory. It's also the numbers because... You know, if she had not had a strong turnout in that district, Mm -hmm. I mean, forgetting, because like you mentioned, Clem Smith or some others, they may not have had a strong turnout because they figured they were, I mean. Well, they were unopposed, basically. Right, right. But my point is, so you have residents in that district who may or may not have had been wanting to vote otherwise since he wasn't threatened. Maybe they were upset with staying or stream or whatever. But the point being that. This was a case where because there was a high number turnout mm-hmm. in the Shoup Ashcroft district, that that very fact may very well have put Stanger over the finish line because he only won by eighteen hundred votes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we could go we could go into memory lane for a long time, <laughs> but let's kind of shift into uh, yeah we're junkies the here, here. The here and now. So you've co-sponsored legislation with Representative Kevin Austin of Springfield that's aimed at protecting victims of human trafficking. I read the summary before the show, and it basically places victims of human trafficking on the Secretary of State's um, 
basically do not publish address lists. Is That's that correct? correct. It's, consi- it's a program called Safe at Home, and it's an address confidentiality program that is, it, that's administered by the Secretary of State's office. Tell me why you think it's an important thing to do. Well, it's another important step that Missouri can take to protect victims of human trafficking. I have been working on anti-human trafficking measures for almost a decade now uh, through my work with Senator Bray. Back about a decade ago, Senators Bray and Senator Matt Bartle out of the Kansas City area co-sponsored and passed Missouri's first anti-human trafficking laws. And so it started out that Senator Bray told me I needed to get involved in anti-human trafficking work back here in the district to kind of pump up and supplement the work she was doing at the legislative level. So I've been working on this issue for about a decade. This um, House Bill 368 and the companion Senate bill is Senate Bill 211. These are things that we can do to continue to help victims in their road to recovery. What we heard from counselors and groups that help trafficking victims is they need to find a way to have a a fresh start and a new life away from their traffickers. And sometimes that means you need to keep your address private. And this is an interesting issue because this is one of those unusual issues where you have a lot of Republicans involved, like uh, Congresswoman Ann Wagner. Mm -hmm. This is one of her big issues. And she's rising Republican in St. Louis County. Why do you think that this one, this issue is one of those few ones that seems to be um, gathering uh, strength across party lines? Luke DeMeyer, for example, has been has put out some stuff this week about it. Mm -hmm. Well, at the in the Missouri legislative level, I think that people sincerely that it truly is a sincerely bipartisan effort. I'm not so sure at the federal level that all of that came out of the goodness of people's hearts. I think that um, the Republican at the federal level, their their work on anti-human trafficking work came after they had been accused for months and months of their war on women. So I'm I'm not 100 percent convinced that it's authentic. Um, at the federal level. But with my colleagues in the Missouri House and the Missouri Senate, I feel like it's sincerely a bipartisan effort. It comes from the heart. Um, We might come at it from different reasons. I remember thinking, you know, that Senator Bray came at her opposition to trafficking more from a human rights standpoint, where Senator Bartle came at it more from a Christian value standpoint. But we still agree that that trafficking is wrong, that uh, human slavery is wrong. And I guess that bill got across the finish line. Yep. So it, it it, again, that's an example of, you know, Democrats and Republicans working together, probably on the exact opposite ideological mm-hmm. planes. Exactly, because Bray and Bartles, you couldn't get much more different on exactly. other issues. Yeah, and that, um, you know, the press conference that uh, uh, Secretary of State Kander hosted this week, it was a true bipartisan group of bill sponsors standing up there, and I'm confident we can get it done this year. So another thing that you've sponsored is ethics legislation. Mm -hmm. You're one of many legislators who are kind of tackling that issue. Chris has obviously been following this from the lobbyist perspective. Joe and I have been following campaign finance-related stuff, as has Chris. What's kind of the bill that you introduced in a nutshell, and what's kind of your your general feel that not only that ethics legislation will pass, but whether it will be impactful? Because there have been ethics bills that have passed in the last 10 years that frankly, haven't been that impactful at changing things. So what's kind of your, your, your take well, on the situation? Well, I, I hate to hear your cynicism. That just, uh, you know, I guess that's your journalistic... Uh... I'm a little cynical on <laughs> yeah, this issue. Yeah, yeah. I'm hopeful that the voters are, you know, because of a lot of great coverage by responsible uh, media out there, I think the voters have really had it and are disgusted by Missouri's lack of limits on lobbyist gifts, for example. We're we're the only state in the nation where there's no limit on what a lobbyist can give you. And 
you know, I think there's a big difference between getting a free pen from the Missouri Corn Growers Association and getting four tickets to the World Series. Anybody with half a brain knows there's a difference between a free pen and, and World Series tickets. So, you know, I would like to see and I've proposed limits on what lobbyists can can give to legislators. Here's why I was cynical, because back when I was working for the Columbia Tribune, I was writing about how they had closed this loophole where they gave gifts to caucuses. And I'm not talking about Republican and Democratic caucuses. I'm talking about like the Cowboy Caucus Mm -hmm. and the, you know, 200 Annex Caucus, which was basically used to shield lobbyist gifts. And after that, they were like, when they got rid of that, they're like, okay, it's going to be completely out in the open. But as Chris has reported, yep. the, the concealment hasn't stopped. I think it's probably gotten it's, worse. It's, it's gone up, actually. We had a story that the trend is m- the vast, vast majority of it is going to groups as opposed to individuals. So it's it's definitely not a trend that's going away anytime soon. So yeah. so how do you how do you kind of play this game of whack-a-mole effectively? Yeah, I mean, and that's a great analogy. I think that as citizens, because I mean, I'm a I'm a voter myself and, and want to see as good of government as we can get. I We can't let, just because we can't make something perfect doesn't mean we can't try and can't try to take steps in the right direction. And I think we just have to keep a constant vigil on these things and, and not let people get away with things. Um, you know, I think Speaker Deal took a good step um, when he became Speaker by not allowing the, 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 gifts and the dinners and such just to go to a committee, um, you know, you now have to have to put the people's names on who is getting the free steak dinner or whatever. But, so but, we, but just this week, we had yeah. Country Club Gate, basically. Yeah. Um, Although, so uh, the Jefferson County Country Club, which... Jefferson City. Uh, uh, yes, Jefferson I'm sure City. The they Jefferson didn't travel Co- to Jefferson County. I'm sure County. the Jefferson yeah. County Country Club is beautiful, but uh, probably not as good as yeah. Jefferson City. And that country club shows up a lot on lobbyist disclosures, and there was uh, a House hearing that was held there. After it was held, it got a lot of media attention, and then that is when Representative Deal said, all right, we're not going to do that I anymore. I think he had basically said, though, before the session started that there was not going to be these committee hearings and restaurants. And, you know, I kind of understand how you, why you do that initially. Mm-hmm. Maybe you want to, like, have the committee members get to know each other better, you know, maybe talk about things informally. And I know, guess you've got to make it open because of sunshine laws if everybody's there. Yeah. But, I mean, this kind of seemed pretty extreme. You well, know? and the country club just sends the wrong message. It'd be yeah. different. You know, you, you could do the same kind of thing in an Applebee's or something, and at least it's a more, you know, uh, approachable kind of venue. I just think it sends the wrong message, especially because – the people funding the dinner, dinner so that right. Tuesday night meeting was uh, for the tele- telecommunications committee in the Missouri House, and then the dinner was funded by people from the telecommunications industry. The people Who were supposed to be regulating. About it, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, so it would be another thing if they were all meeting at the country club and everybody was, uh, if it was Dutch treat. Right. You know, or yeah. at Applebee's or right. wherever. And that's, in effect, what I do. So I, I do go to mm. group dinners off-site because that is the only time you get a chance to really get to know the people you work with. Mm-hmm. One of the bad things about term limits, in my opinion, is there's no motivation, there's not motivation for a lot of people to get to know their colleagues. You know, back when before term limits, Senator Bray was in office for 18 years. I mean, she went canoeing with people. She went on vacation with people from the other side of the aisle. They had true connections and friendships and relationships, and I really see that missing. So that being said, I do go to group dinners that are held off-site, but then I use my own personal money, not my campaign money, to, to pay for my own meal. And that's really the only time you get a chance to talk to someone 
in the other party and find out, you know, how many kids do you have? You know, what do you like to do when you're not here in Jeff City? That kind of thing. And it's also important for you as a Democrat, since you're so deep in the minority, a lot of times, though not always, you have to kind of partner with a Republican to put ideas forward. When we had Senator, now Senator Shoup, on the show, she mentioned that she basically did that during her time in the House, where she, like, you know, came up with an idea and, um, you know, went to a Republican and said, can you sponsor this so we could get to the finish line? And you can't really do that if you don't talk to the other side, right. essentially. So. Well, and a great example of that is this human trafficking legislation. You know, it, it's I'm not the lead sponsor on it. Uh, Representative Kevin Austin out of Springfield, Missouri, is the lead sponsor, and I'm fine with that. I think that in order to be successful, I, as a member of the minority party, need to be comfortable with not getting credit for things that get done. But I know, you know, in, in my heart that I'm going to be a part of getting some things done. Now, one of the things that is being... Um, pushed by some legislators, including like Caleb Rowden, I think has a bill on this, has to do with uh, the growth of 501c4s in Missouri, Mm -hmm. which are groups, many of them are political groups. As long as they uh, spend at least just under 50% of their money on politics that they they can be 501c4 but they don't so-called have to identify social welfare nonprofits cor- correct and they do not have to identify their donors and there's been uh, a high profile one that was just formed within the last week so there's a growing number of those in uh, the state who are trying to uh, lobby for or against legislation in the case of this particular one they are lobbying against any sort of medicaid expansion what's it called uh, it's the Missouri Century Foundation and one of our previous guests, Greg Keller, is one of the top guys in it. Also, um, Rich Christmer, and actually a number of pretty prominent Republican operatives or consultants or activists are um, involved. And I'm not knocking the group at all. I'm just saying this is like one of the latest. There's a number of others. Um, former state rep Carl Bearden's been head of one for quite a while. But I, re- I know this has been, I remember in, after the 12 election cycle, Republicans were talking about basically exposing the donors to 501c4s after the Kinderlager matchup, after Correct. the Miranda situation. And even though Todd Richardson and Jay Barnes were talking about it, I don't think they ever introduced legislation mm-hmm. and nothing really came of it. So what's kind of the prospects this year and why is why have things changed? Well, well and, and here's one thing. Keller says one of their key objectives is to is, is to fight any bill that tries to require that the donors be identified because 501c4s are are formed under federal legislation Mm -hmm. and they believe that the state can't require that. Yeah. I mean, I'm no tax expert, but I don't see how Missouri can do anything. That those The 501c3 and 501c4 status is through the federal government. I don't know how we could, could do something unique to Missouri in that regard. But are you seeing a more active presence by them and stuff, either promoting or objecting to legislation. The thing is, is like day-to-day activities in Jefferson City, I don't actually know, you know, who's being funded and and who, and sometimes you, you can talk to a citizen lobbyist or a paid lobbyist and not really know, like, who's paying their bill. Yeah. So I'm not seeing, I'm not overtly seeing any C4 activity. Okay. Well, let's kind of talk about the state of the House Democrats and some political stuff. I, I'm cringing when I say this, but it's the politically part of politically speaking. I've, 
the, hear the cringes all <laughs> over this Missouri. One. That was a great one. There's only 44 <laughs> Democrats in the 163-member House, which and, is yep. pretty low. And Historically we, low, I think. And, and you yeah, had a situation. You had a situation a couple months ago where Linda Black, who was a socially conservative Democrat, became a Republican. And then a frankly bizarre situation this week where Keith English, who's a Democrat, was a Democrat from Florissant, announced that he was an independent. And, okay, the situations are different. I know Linda Black was more socially conservative, and maybe she saw this as an opportunity to be more influential by going to the majority. The Keith English thing, I just would like to know, as a, from a Democratic member, what is going on there, basically? Well, he's uh, he's hard to get to know. I'll just uh, say that politely. Um, I think that uh, he really enjoys drama. And, you know, I know a lot of public officials tend to be more dramatic. Um, but I think he had this kind of orchestrated all along. He seemed very motivated to have a big office in Jefferson City. And for those that, that don't know, the majority party, so in this case the Republicans, have bigger and better offices than the Democrats do. Um, I really could care less that my office feels like a coat closet because that's, you know, you're just in there to, to work on the computer. Yeah, it doesn't need to Just be. as a quick aside, Clint's wife had one of those coat closet offices, and he's doing great right yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. You can survive a small office. But, but continue. So, so anyway, uh, Representative English voted with the Republicans on a draconian tax bill that the uh, last session last session and was rewarded for his, for voting with the Republicans by being given a very nice office on the third floor. Part of the Democratic caucus rules are that you can't take anything of value, including an office, in exchange for a vote. So our leadership within the caucus had said that until he decides to move down to the first floor into the coat closet offices with the rest of us, he was not going to get any committee assignments. So we had hit an impasse and things kind of uh, exploded this week. It, it spiraled out of control. I was Somebody told me of a very fractious caucus meeting where one member, not Keith English, was basically like, well, and and this was this was told to me before you told me offline, but it was basically like, well, if, when you join a, a group or an organization, you have to abide by the, the bylaws. And if you don't do that, then you shouldn't be part of that organization. And from what I heard, he responded by saying, well, by that logic, Michael Brown shouldn't have been walking in the street or he would still be alive, which caused people to basically want to kick him out of the caucus mm -hmm. after that. Um, that was basically what was told to me. Um, you know, on background. And for listeners who have not read Jason's very good story detailing all of the English drama, uh, you definitely go to our website, stlpublicradio.org, and you can click on Jason and now, read the story. Now, he, wasn't, he didn't comment on the caucus meeting, but one of the things that he said was basically like, well, the Democratic Party has just moved too far left for somebody who is anti-abortion rights and pro-gun rights. But the thing that kind of struck me about is I've been following the legislative process a long time. I know people are new people like Ron Casey of Jefferson County or Belinda Harris or Ben Harris or the former Rachel Bringer. I think she's been married and has a different last name. They were all strongly anti-abortion Democrats, but they were welcomed within their caucus because they were seen as team players. And I think that they were able to coexist with maybe some more progressive left of center liberal Democrats. So basically, you don't feel like that washes I don't. essentially. I, I, you know, Keith 
before the caucus meeting, he had already prepared his press release and his speech. He was planning to leave the Democratic Party before we ever got together for our caucus meeting. So it was it was very orchestrated. I think his inflammatory remark at the caucus meeting was he was trying to provoke a response from us so that he could say we kicked him out and that he didn't leave on his own. But ultimately, we did not kick him out. He left on his but own. The, but the fact remains, though, you are the, the Democrats are in a, a super minority right mm-hmm. now. Um, you basically worked all hard all these years to get to the legislature. And now you're at 44. And a lot of those conservative Democrats I alluded to, you know, they might have term limited out, but their seats were replaced by Republicans. There are hardly any rural Democrats anymore. So taking this English situation aside, what do Democrats have to do to kind of reverse this slide and kind of start to gain their numbers back both in the House and the Senate? Well, you know, there are a lot of different things going on. The the way redistricting happened, you know, a lot of these districts are not even competitive anymore. You know, that's why I think there were like 60 races for the state house that didn't even have 60 Republicans ran for state rep and didn't even have a Democrat running against them because we just I think as a party realized we didn't have a chance. So there the the way the district lines are drawn can be challenging, but I don't think the Democratic Party or Democratic candidates really have to change who they are or what they represent. I think our values line up with the values of the state of Missouri and the country. I just think we've we've had a, a tough year, and of course, turnout was really, really low, too, in a lot of places. I mean, do the Democrats do a good, in your view, do they do a good job of outlining what they're for? It seems like... Um, Many times, in some cases on the national level and sometimes on the state level, I run into voters who say, well, they just don't really understand either what the Democratic Party is for or they feel like they're weak or uh, the point being Or they're is, trying to be Republican light, essentially. Correct, and correct. I, that wasn't really a problem among many St. Louis County Democrats right. because, as we were talking about before, many of them were very upfront about their Yeah, I ran pro-choice and I ran pro-Medicaid expansion. So. And so did Shoup. Mm-hmm. And so did uh, Deb Lavender, who, who won in Kirkwood. But my point being is that a lot of the losers didn't. Like right. Jeff Rorda. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I'm, I don't mean yeah. to be blunt, but I've said this many times. He basically ran as a super anti-abortion, pro-gun, and, you know, after the Michael Brown situation, very pro-law enforcement, which I think he genuinely believes. Mm-hmm. He's a former He's a former cop. Officer. But those other two issues, he wasn't known as in the legislature as either of those things before he was elected to a fourth term. And I think that there was very few little distinctions between him and Paul Whelan. In some ways, Paul Whelan may have been a little bit more to the left of, of, of Rorda because Paul Whelan is against the death penalty. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Y- you had a very strange situation there. And I think that was, might have been a big reason why he lost because there's no distinctions between the candidates. And, you know, it was a red wave in Jefferson County, per se. Yeah. So well, as I think, a Democrat, yeah, what, I think what do you think? One example that that your question reminds me of is this past November's elections, many states passed increases in minimum wage, which is a Democratic party issue and value, but yet the Democrats got clobbered in those states. So I think that as a Democrat, I want to be a part of helping to connect what we stand for with the actual candidates, you know, so that because it just makes no sense that minimum wage increases pass, but a lot of Democrats lose as candidates. So I I think we need to do a better job of tying our the Democratic values to to the people. All right. I'm going to cut us off here. Uh, You can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org, including Jason's uh, story about the caucus meeting. You can follow me on Twitter at at CSMcDaniel. Jason, you can be followed on Twitter. Jay Rosenbaum. And Joe? You can follow me at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. 
And representative. Yeah, you can, you can follow me on Twitter as well, Tracy McCreary. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long.